0: Visit plannedparenthood.org slash future to learn more and support their cause.
1: That's wise, W I S E dot com. Wise dot com. Let's like talk about what this
2: policy is. Okay. Take a break. And then then I want to complain about politics. All right. Great. So welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Fox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Glacius here today with Sarah Cliff and Dara Lind. We're really excited to have Dara in for Ezra here on Tuesday, back on Tuesday, because there's a there's a white paper that she's been dying to talk about. Um, it's, really it's been white good. paper
0: deprived over on Friday. And, I, you know, I've, I found a sociology article about immigrants, about an experimental, like, design to test immigrant stereotypes. So it's great. It's delightful. It's,
2: it's fantastic. But first, we want to talk about, Sarah, you wrote a great piece about a big sort of new idea that Senator Cory Booker is putting forward that, yeah, I mean, it's interesting on its own terms. But also, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious. This is like Cory Booker is weighing in on the ideas primary. He would like to run for president. Yes. And he's trying to make his mark here. So I think we we should talk about what the bill yes. says and then also like what does it say about Cory Booker?
3: Yeah. So I think we're definitely in the like ideas primary primary part of the 2020 presidential election, like starting with Bernie Sanders, Medicare for all. We have Kamala Harris with her cash assistance plan that came out last week. And then Cory Booker is kind of getting into this space with um, a program that he's calling Opportunity Accounts or Baby Bonds. And he is kind of framing this as, um, you know, something to deal with the racial wealth gap in the United States. So just to draw back before we get to the policy, the thing he wants us to be talking about, the thing he's thinking about, is the fact that white families have a lot more wealth than minority families. That, you know, one recent study found that the median white family has 10 times more equity, um, $170,000 than the median black family, which has $17,000. It's a really stark difference. It's been growing. And it can make it really hard to get ahead to, you know, it it means that white children and higher-income children are starting off with a lot more advantages than, you know, children who don't have that equity to do things like go to college, buy a house, get together a down payment. It's kind of going beyond the idea of an earnings gap to a, a wealth gap that kind of builds over generations and generations. And... If you want to learn more about this, there's actually an excellent episode of um, our Netflix show Explained that um, our, our absent host Ezra worked on that he interviewed Cory Booker about this particular issue and where he talked about what's going on and what drives the wealth gap. And a lot of the wealth gap has been driven by federal policies, things like not writing mortgages to black families in certain neighborhoods. So, you know, enter this policy that Cory Booker is putting out there where what he wants to do is give every child born in America something he calls an opportunity account. And when they're born, you would get $1,000 on it. This would be every baby regardless of income. And then every year of their life up until 18, they could get as much as $2,000 deposited in that account. Um, You know, and someone, a baby who's living in a family below the poverty line would be getting $2,000. A kid born into a family that earns more than 500% of the poverty line, which is I think around like $140,000, $50,000 for a family of four, would not get anything. They would have that original $1,000. And essentially the idea is that every kid by the time they get to eighteen would have some kind of nest egg that they could invest. You know, a higher-income kid would have that nest egg from their parents. A lower-income kid would have that from their um, opportunity account, or it often gets called a baby bond as well. So a kid who lives their entire life below the poverty line, Booker's office estimates that they'd have about $47,000 in their account when they turn 18, and that's, you know, assuming I think a 3% Growth rate, So, you know, it's being managed by Treasury and some kind of low-risk fund. And one of the things I think is notable about the politics here is Cory Booker is being really explicit about, you know, the, the racial dimensions of this policy, that he is being really explicit. This is a benefit that is going to accrue to, you know, African-American kids, to Latino kids. You know, his office sent me charts that show even though white kids are the majority in this program, it's actually Latino and African-American kids who are reaping most of the benefits of this program. Program, who will end up with larger savings accounts because they're coming from families with a, with lower earnings. So,
2: so what, what can you do with this account? So yeah, I, I turn yeah. 18, yeah. I've got, whether it's mom and dad or, or Uncle Sam sure. or whoever, I've got my 40, 50 grand.
3: Well, if it's mom or dad, it's up to mom or dad. But if it's your opportunity account, um, so you can spend it on college tuition. You could put it towards a down payment on your house. You could save it until you are 65 and spend it on retirement. You know, one And of the there would things, be some,
2: some tax benefits.
3: Yes. Yeah. If I'd
2: use it as a retirement account. Yeah,
3: yeah. So one of the things, you know, they haven't fully figured out, and they will say, you know what, even if this passed today, we'd have 18 years to figure this out, are things like, could you spend it on a car? Like, sure. on the one hand, you don't want, you know, it, it seems like it could be a bit of a frivolous purchase. On the other hand, a car can be really important to getting to a job or getting to your college. So they envision— some kind of federal commission that would help sort out like what is or isn't a qualified expense you know sure. just like we have like dependent care fsas or healthcare fsas that you'd have to have someone come up with the list but the idea is everything that this account can be spent on is something that would go towards asset building and i think also one of the really notable features is that they're not really thinking of a way for people to pull this out before you turn 18. So, like, with a 401k, you can pull stuff out of it. You get a huge tax hit. But, like, let's say you're having some kind of emergency, and that's really not a purpose of this account. And it seems like a pretty interesting, important choice to me that, you know, this can only be used by the child, even if, you know, you're having trouble making rent, you're having trouble buying groceries. Like, this account is off-limits until the child turns 18. And even then, it's pretty strictly limited to a certain— like, you can't use right. so it to buy groceries. So you're 16.
2: You, your mom, and your two siblings are homeless. And you have $43,000 in your account, which in two years you could use to get a down payment for a house, except you're not going to be able to qualify for a mortgage. But you can't use the money for rent right. while you're out on the streets and this is, risking yeah. your life.
3: Yeah. I mean, this is something I talked to Senator Booker about, and his, you know, response to me was, you know, while I support programs to help that family, you know, I I would say at the end of the day, he's talking about raising revenue for this, you know, through some changes to the tax code that would primarily hit higher earners. And at the end of the day, like, you have to make a practical decision. Like, where does that revenue you're raising go? Does it, you know, go towards programs that are going to help with that situation that you're outlining, or does it go into these opportunity accounts? And I think it is, like, a notable decision and one with trade-offs to say, you know, this is off limits, even to people who might be able to, you know, really benefit from using it, um, you know, before it's vested.
0: This is why I think that even though usually it's hard to distinguish policy from politics, it's especially hard to disentangle the two here because this is pretty pure redistributive politics. Like the ideas that Booker and his team have to pay for this are things like the capital gains tax, the estate tax, things that are known tax benefits that accrue mostly to wealthy families – getting rid of those to accrue more wealth for lower-income families. That means that the question of who is this for and who is it on the backs of, which is, you know, the key political question, is also the key policy question. And so, like, Booker has clearly made a decision here that he's going for a pure equality of opportunity agenda here. That he's saying, you know, this is not about giving your parents more money to support you and to make sure that you have the conditions for a, you know, healthy and thriving home. It's to make sure that no adult starts out in their independent life without some kind of nest egg. That has a serious political upside in a world where one of the most common attacks on welfare programs is that no matter whether you say you're trying to help children out or not you are essentially because money is fungible helping their parents so if politicians disapprove of the life choices that parents make they are going to be upset about any attempt to help children either like okay so you don't have concerns about what if the parents use the baby bond to buy drugs and that kind of thing or you know less egregious fear mongering that is still kind of based in this well you we shouldn't be rewarding you for your bad decisions. But on the other hand, you're right. There's a lot of stuff that kids go through before they turn 18. And I think one of the big questions that this policy raises is how much does a progressive agenda right now even need— like, is it even talking about adulthood? Or are we talking about levels of inequality, right, that are baked into the cake pretty well by the time you turn 18?
2: But I actually think if you— if you're thinking about policy, right, if you're thinking about, like, the intention here is that it would be a mistake to equip 18-year-olds with just, like, a giant unrestricted check, right? So the idea is that there's fairly narrowly circumscribed things you can use it for. And in particular, like, the two things they seem to actually have in mind are a college education and a kind of starter home. and. I think we should ask ourselves whether – if our desire is to equip 18-year-olds with a college education, and it appears to be disjunctive, a college education or a starter home. A, like why is that disjunctive, right? And B, like is this an effective way to pursue that? Like we already have a program that gives um, ungenerous terms loans to – kids if they want to go to college. On the presumption, it's very much an asset building presumption, right? That like going to college will pay off for you a lot. So if the government gives you a discount loan to attend, like ultimately that will be win-win, right? Like society will benefit from you being better educated. You'll be better off with the degree and the debt. The government will get paid back, blah, blah, blah. So now we all know that like in practice, there are a lot of problems associated with the student loan program in particular. There's a lot of kids take out loans and then don't complete school and wind up with a huge debt burden. And then there's also a lot of middle class people who do complete school and who at the end of the day really are better off than people who never went to college but they have these big debts hanging over them. And there's a sense that like education should be a public good that's provided and there's been a big movement on the Democratic side to free college and I think... Reasonable people could disagree, like should we spend money on making college free or should we spend money on, I don't know what, you know, like medicine for poor children or lower taxes or whatever. But if the goal is to get people to go to college, spending money on making their college free seems a lot better than giving them this upfront check that they can then go use on tuition, which if anything, it might just lead schools to raise prices. And so then with all this complicated mechanic of, like, the account and the annual deposit and the 3% incomes, like, all you're really doing is, like, padding out the ability of community colleges to charge.
3: Right. So this is something I've talked with Booker's office about. As so if this is something they're cognizant of because I asked them, you know, well, how did you decide on the amount? And, you know, they want the payment to be sizable enough that you could actually do something with it. Right. But then you kind of, like, worry about these inflationary effects where, obviously, like, if we're injecting a bunch of money into very specific sectors, and you could worry about this in the housing sector as well. Like, if people just have a bunch of money to spend, like, of course, if I'm community college, I'm going to raise my tuition, you know, to capture those dollars. And so it's definitely, you know, something that they are thinking about. But I think it, like, hits at attention in a lot of these policies that we're seeing come out, that you saw play out in the 2016 election of, you know, whether we should target these policies. And I think Booker wants to target them because he's trying to narrow a gap versus like a Sanders-esque anything for all, college for all, Medicare for all, like, you know, hit the entire population. And I think it's an interesting divide that we're seeing show up in progressive politics. And I think it's driven by kind of, you know, well, what is your your motivation? But but
2: I don't even mean targeting versus not targeting. It's like, providing versus subsidizing, right? Like we could hire people to build houses, like little houses, and then we could give those houses away for free to qualifying 18-year-olds or put them on some kind of payment plan, right? Like we could do a social house building program. And I don't know that that would be a good idea, but there's a real sense in which like the government would be more effective – At like building lots of cheap houses and giving them to 18-year-olds than it would be at giving 18-year-olds lump sums that they could use as a down payment. But then who is going to – like who is going to loan this 18-year-old from below the poverty line who say he has a low-end job and now he has this check from the government for the down payment. Like how is he going to get the mortgage? Like like Booker has this narrative which is, you know, well-known from the academic literature about redlining and, and sort of the, the post-war loan subsidies and how those excluded African-American families. But this agenda doesn't address that in any way, right? Like, the whole point of that narrative is that it's not that middle-class black families didn't have the money for a down payment. It's that the federal government made a program that would eliminate the need for a down payment for returning soldiers. But then you weren't allowed to use that program in black neighborhoods, and black families weren't allowed to buy houses in white neighborhoods. So, like, that that was a terrible problem of racial discrimination, and now— I think to a large extent, redlining has been alleviated, though not eliminated. And now we have a program that doesn't address it, right? Like, there's a real disconnect to me here. And like, like, why does this program do what it's supposed to do?
4: I
0: I think that the answer to that question also raises another kind of can of worms. Because it seems to me that the argument for we are agnostic between college, starter home, and retirement, but we want you to do one of those things, is the idea that there is something important about intergenerational wealth transfer, that that in particular is something that is accessible to white families, not accessible to families of color, and should be. And so, yeah, it makes a certain amount of sense that, like, it's kind of okay if you decide to just save that money for retirement rather than going to college, Mm -hmm. or if you do something that is going to, like, more likely to boost your wealth. But... As you were getting into with the redlining and the difference between wealth and income, it's not super clear that boosting wealth at the beginning of somebody's adult life is necessarily going to keep them from getting into the kind of debt that is going to ruin their wealth profile, you know, for the rest of their lives. Like one of the ways you can express the intergenerational wealth gap is that college-educated African-Americans have lower net wealth than white Americans who, like, didn't complete high school. Like, that's not good. That's also may very well have something to do with the fact that middle class debt is a thing.
2: And I I also think that the housing and discrimination angle of the wealth gap, I feel, is often misinterpreted by liberals, right? So one problem that black families have accumulating wealth today, right, is that America's— does a lot of subsidies for middle-class homebuyers. But the home asset does not perform as well if you are an African-American homebuyer as if you are a white homebuyer because there is discrimination in the real estate market. So you as a black homebuyer moving into the neighborhood – exerts a negative impact on the price of your neighbor's homes, which increases the odds that the next people who move into the neighborhood will themselves be African-American. And you have a downward spiral, right, of white flight and blockbusting. And so your asset underperforms. So that's bad. And we can, as a society, address, like, racism. But if we want to do something with just money, right— making the homeownership subsidies more widely available doesn't address the fact that white home buyers investment will outperform black home buyers. But if you look at every other financial class, right? Like it does not have that dynamic, right? If a black person buys some shares of Microsoft stock, there's no like white flight from Microsoft. And and so what you want to address, it seems to me, is the incredibly unequal ownership of financial assets rather than Sort of like endlessly circling the drain around the like interlocking housing discrimination uh, sort of redlining cluster. Like you're not going to pull out by doing this.
0: Not to mention the fact that after the housing bubble collapsed, there was a certain amount of reconsideration of – was it perhaps a problem that culturally and in policy we inscribed the idea that the house is the primary founder right. of wealth? But
2: I mean in like, policy, right? Like right. It's like you're taking this thing, right? It has historically not worked for black families to rely on housing as like the sole pillar of middle class wealth building. And now like every solution is just to like push that lever harder.
0: Beyond the kind of outperforming thing, it also creates the opportunity for predatory lenders to come in and say, we know that the thing you want most in this world is a home to call your own. We're already seeing the kind of rebirth of a lot of the low entry cost mortgage practices that were alarming a lot of people during the housing crisis. It's pretty clear that we haven't really broken the fever of, if I could have a home, everything would be all right, when in fact, that's often the thing that puts people over the edge in terms of their liabilities outstripping their assets. So
2: wait, let's take a break, though, and then let's talk about this, this framing question.
4: Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash NAP. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together, or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds.
2: To me, one of the most fascinating things about this, Sarah, is how explicitly Booker's team sort of framed this as about race. Because it's a facially neutral policy, right? I mean, there are many low-income white families who get money from this program. It's closest antecedent if you were to say like where has this been tried is there was a similar program under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown in the UK where – I mean of course there is racial diversity in the UK but they do not have the particular history that the United States does and it was not at all framed as a racial issue. In Britain, and it almost feels backwards to me, it's like I feel like the way American politics worked, at least like before 2015, is that like Democrats would propose racially neutral schemes of income redistribution, and then Republicans would characterize it as like a backhanded way to like get whitey. And now Cory Booker, I mean, I sort of get like if you're trying to win a Democratic presidential primary, like Booker and Harris need to compete with each other to be the black candidate. And then— in both 2016 and 2008, the candidate who won the preponderance of black support won the primary. So they're sort of pitching themselves right. this well, way. Well, C- this it's just to me, this yes. feels like we're like we're doing politics backwards.
3: No, and you are seeing. So one of the interesting things so I wrote the story about this Booker policy yesterday. Um, it ended up on the Drudge Report, which had the exact backlash that you were talking about. My email is now like a dumpster fire of emails I've received since since then, and since many people have read the story from the Drudge Report. But it, like, wouldn't
2: you want to mention how beneficial this will be to, like, people in northern Maine and West Virginia? And Not like, right
3: now, though, right? Like, if you're—like you said, like, I think what you said, it's kind of obvious why you do it this way. Like, at this—sure, if you were doing this in, like, 2019, maybe, or 2020. I know, but, like, but, like, like I as a Democratic primary voter
2: would like to not lose the election. <laughs> so
3: I think that it's possible to think about this
0: as a good faith argument happening on policy, and I don't— this is wildly speculative, so maybe I'm giving everybody more credit than they deserve. But the thing that strikes me about ostensibly redistributive policies is that over the last half century or so, the problems of racial inequality have become tied up with a lot of policies that are non-economic in nature, right? Like. Mass incarceration, kind of bad for intergenerational wealth far as it's not great for the earning potential of whole generations of African-American men. The you know, fact that we're now at a point where we've gone 30 years without a substantial legalization of unauthorized immigrants means we have entire generations of U.S. citizen kids growing up in households where one or both parents or even grandparents are unauthorized immigrants. There are... Things that affect the ability of children to have a nest egg for college or be able to buy a starter home that can't just be answered by looking at how much money did their parents make and how much wealth did their parents have. So when you're talking about a new distributive policy, those Problems create easy boogeymen. It's very easy to say we don't want to give this welfare program to anybody with a criminal record. We don't want to give this welfare program to any illegal immigrants, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So those things end up being problems for the U.S. citizen kids without records, you know, being born into those families. Meanwhile, you know, you have a situation where a lot of Black men who turn 18 right now probably will have some kind of contact with police before they turn 18. So the political liabilities of, do you really want to give money to juvenile delinquents or incentivize immigrants to have kids in the United States, are a thing that's going to come up in the national debate over this. If you have portrayed this as a solution to the racial wealth gap, you are holding yourself accountable to a set of stakeholders who are then going to be able to come in and say, look— you're watering down this policy to respond to conservative demands in a way that stops it from solving the problem you want to solve. This is defeating the point you have to stick to your guns. So I think that that's kind of a good policy reason why you would frame this as a racial wealth gap in this way. I I don't think that that contradicts anything about the problems with white people thinking this is a giveaway for black people. Right. But I do think that The Democratic base has a certain amount of, you know, once bitten, twice shy or many times bitten, many times shy about things that they're told are going to help everyone. And then by the time they get through the culture wars, only help the same sliver of people who have already been helped by everything else. Well, I
3: mean, but like to go to your point, Matt, it is really notable. Like when I think back to like how the Affordable Care Act was framed, so they just said this was health insurance for everybody. And then, like, they let all the think tanks run the numbers, and, like, CAP figures out, like, actually this disproportionately benefits African Americans. Latinos are going to see their uninsured rate go way down. So Urban Institute, CAP, like, all these, like, liberal think tanks are kind of, like, doing the next step of analysis, saying, oh, well, if you give this universal benefit to everybody, like, just like you give everybody an opportunity account, it turns out, like, this is what happens. And I think you're right that I am not used to seeing, like, this level— of explicitness around race in a policy like this um, and I don't know I mean I'm curious how it plays out like I think it like I, I, so I think it makes sense we, in the political so climate I, of I, right I, now. I
1: have
2: actually though a stronger critique of this like okay, I, I think that the racial wealth gap narrative that exists in much of America is a little bit it's like 70 to 80 percent sort of neoliberal claptrap that is designed to distract people from the, like, main question of wealth inequality in the United States. So, like, it sounds really shocking that the median white family has five times the wealth. Ten times the wealth of of the median black family. But, but, like, check this out. The bottom 90% of Americans collectively own 23% of the wealth in this country and the top 0.1% collectively own 22% of the wealth, right? Like that's crazy. You know, that is a much— bigger disparity than the median-median disparity. And it's driven not by these differences in home ownership rates, but it's driven by the wildly disproportionate ownership of stocks and bonds, right, in which 10 percent of the population owns 80 percent of the stock market. And it strikes me that it is true and interesting as an academic exercise that the American middle class of the good old days that Donald Trump likes to express nostalgia for was built through racially exclusionary programs. That is like true history and people should be aware of it and like When Affirmative Action Was White by Ira Katznelson is a really good book. Um, There's good things written about this. But like today in America, 0.1 percent of the population owns as much wealth as the bottom 90 percent of the population and – To discuss the problem as if, like, the real villains in American society are middle-class white homeowners, I think is, like, politically counterproductive because it is substantively wrong. Like, I think white families who are at around the median of wealth and income in the United States of America correctly see themselves as getting screwed when sort of— elite type people say that they want to help the most underprivileged people in society by putting it on the backs of people like them rather than by putting it on the backs of people like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg. Like there is wild wealth disparity all across the ethnic landscape of the United States of America. It's not that like Donald Trump's brand of like racial, nationalistic posturing has real solutions to this problem. But, like, if you want to talk about economics in the United States, like, you have to talk about the incredible accumulation of wealth and power on the part of a very small number of billionaires. And, like, I've observed a million times, it's like, Cory Booker actually has one of the most liberal voting records in the Senate by, like, DW nominate scores, but nobody thinks of him as, like, a real left-wing guy. And, like, this to me is why. He's, like, come up with something to, like, help poor black and Latino people that has somehow managed to, like, totally miss, like, wealthy and powerful America.
3: I mean, I, I think you can, I don't want to come back to that dumb, like, why can't you have both, Kif, that sure. we've talked about. But it's also, like, you know, there, there are multiple problems. And, like, yes, there is this, like, disparity you're talking about, but there also is this racial disparity. So I think, you know, putting forward policies that deal with that particular problem, like, that is a positive step, even if it is not attacking all the problems out there. But I mean,
2: yes, like, why not both? But here's my point, like, it is both, right? Like, the top 0.1% is much, much, much wider than the bottom 90%, right? So it's like, why not do both? And why not do both with a rhetoric and a politics that is designed to, like, try to get people working together like why do it with a politics that is framed around like so this is
3: more of a politics argument you're making well but but it's a a politics
2: argument that is about what is the reality you know what i mean like there are issues like i think like dara was talking about like, like policing seems to me like this is the quintessential issue in america where like race is about race and like it's not really about class and it's not really about economics.
0: Unless and, you get to, you know, race is about or, or policing is about housing segregation.
1: But yeah, yes, but sure. I mean,
2: you know, I mean, I, I think that there is like a real sense in which like a typical middle or working class white person is privileged in his yes. interactions with the police in a way that even very prosperous African-Americans are not. And like I think that is really true. And it is a tough political problem because like most people are white and asking most people to give up up their privilege is challenging. Like, the racial wealth gap really is an issue in which, like, the racial disparity, though real, is just piggybacking on broad economic trends in the United States. And, like, not just politically, but, like, substantively is more effectively addressed in those terms.
0: So what stuck out to me and what you said was the idea that people are worried that caring for the most disadvantaged is going to be on their backs rather than on the backs of the very rich. Like, that's not— what Cory Booker is proposing, right? Like, Booker isn't saying we kill the mortgage interest deduction. Booker is saying we kill the estate tax. Yes, So I think that there's theoretically a rhetorical world where you can say, we're going to make the billionaires pay for the college educations of the poor people. The question there is, do white people of roughly average wealth and income hear that and see themselves as— potentially most disadvantaged or see themselves as potential millionaires and billionaires. And we've seen pretty consistently that the answer is the latter, right? That especially when coming from, and maybe the fact that Cory Booker is looking at Barack Obama here and looking at the ACA, which was not, you know, not explicitly or even in its final form, substantively, a primarily people of color benefit, be characterized by a large swath of white voters as a giveaway to black people. Maybe he's looking at that and going, going okay if that's already baked into the cake right then there's not a whole lot we can do to get roughly average white people finding solidarity from below instead of But from I
2: mean above. like as Sarah could tell you right like this program like the ACA has this complicated phase out system, Mm -hmm. right? And, like, this is where you have a difference between, again, if you are saying, right, if you're, like, you're Cory Booker, you're walking around Newark where you live, and you're saying, man, I'm worried that these kids are not going to have a chance to go to college, right? A program that says we're going to tax the very wealthy and make college free for everybody, like, that will help those kids in Newark. And it strikes me as having a much stronger chance of succeeding, right, like as a political project. I mean, as a political this-
3: project, like as a policy project, like that's going to get stuck. I, I think it like gets to this question we're talking about of like targeted versus universal because like the revenue we're talking about raising for like anything like with for all after it yeah. is big.
2: I know. And, you know, sometimes you got to like— when the sausage gets made, you know, you make some compromises and and you cut some things down. I mean, just as like the ACA wound up not being exactly what was run on and, and so on and so forth. But I mean, I just remember like two weeks ago, I think I was talking to one of our editors and he was like, we should do a piece about how like Democrats learned the lesson from 2016 that like you should come up with at least like aspirational programs that are simple and easy to describe. And I was like, yeah, that's a, that's a good idea. And then I saw this, and I saw—we should separately talk about Kamala Harris and, and the yes. Lyft Act, but, like, these are both, like—you're, like, staring at these charts, and you're like, what do you get if you're at 375 yes. so percent I, of the I federal I definitely parliament?
3: agree with you on this. So, like, right, if you're going to summarize this program in, the sent- in in a sentence, like, that is a— struggle that I had writing this piece because it's like, well, everyone gets an account, but really it's not like a program for everyone. Like, it's not really a program for the kids, Above five hundred percent of the poverty line, you did great work line. with the
2: graphics team. Like, it's, yes, if you if you look at the but article, you, like you but will it's understand the fact what this you does. needed
3: the graphics. Yeah. That's the, and I mean it is interesting, like where they decide to do the phase out. So they go up to five hundred percent of the poverty line, which sounds like a lot of money because it's five hundred percent. But I think we're talking depending on how many
2: people have an intuitive sense of what the exactly,
3: poverty line. Right, I, I don't <laughs> have an intuitive sense of what the exactly. poverty line. And is. then you're talking about like the poverty line for like a family. Like, you're not talking about like a single kid who's on their own. You're talking about a poverty line for like a family of four. So then I have to go to, like, the HHS website that has the poverty lines and, like, do some math to, like, figure out that, oh, this means if you are in a family that earns more than $150,000, a family of four, then basically you're phased out of the program and you'll get your $1,000 with the interest that's accrued at the end. Which brings me to one other point I want to circle back to you from this British program yes. you brought up. to ma- So I think one of the things that happens when this is not universal and you have these, like, small amounts of money – accruing in some of these accounts is there's actually a decent chance these opportunity accounts just get forgotten,
2: which well, y- so you were specifically, sharing specifically with us. Specifically what happened in Britain, right, was they—so they introduced the accounts in 2004, and so they start accumulating money, and then a conservative government— And was
3: it universal
0: in Britain? I think it okay. was. The, the minimum was universal, okay. I think. So yeah. It was so similar to, to the article
2: that we're going okay. to Yeah, there was a those. small amount, but so then— A Tory government comes in in 2010, and so they want to cut the budget. And so they're thinking, like, well, what can we cut? And so there's a program where, like, literally none of the beneficiaries of this program are allowed to vote. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) So that seems like a good target for cuts. So they don't take the money away from the accounts that are already there, but they stop putting any new money in. And and they don't publicize it anymore, you know, because it's like Gordon Brown's not in office. And so then it takes – more years, right? I think it takes, like, eight to ten more years until anybody who had an account is actually eligible to get the money. And by that time, like, lots of people just don't know that these accounts existed, that they have this old money, and there's this, like, little to-do in the media about, like, how to go get your meager semi-killed-off thing. And so, I mean, there's a story about complexity and forgetting, but, like, also political sustainability, right? Like, when... The labor government introduced the national health system in the '40s. Like that's just still here, seventy years later. And yes. Nobody's going to get rid of it because people use it all the time and they and they like it. This baby bonds thing, uh, very unusually for a welfare state program, was like totally killed off. Like, right away. It had no stickiness because its beneficiaries were 11. Well, the benefit well, had not rolled out, yeah. Right. Like, they're just right. sitting in accounts. But, like, if it takes – I mean, yes. people – like, Obama people say, like, in retrospect, maybe our, like, four-year phase-in was too slow. An 18-year <laughs> phase-in for a program. But then it's weird because it tips. You get all your money when you're 18. So – forever yes. all eligible voters will be receiving no money from this program everyone who's getting money is ineligible <laughs> everyone who's eligible gets no right. money it's That's like social it's
3: social security without the constituency like to support right, it wait it's
2: backwards social security
3: yes. right
0: and i mean this this ties into the you know targeted redistributive aspect of it, right? Because if the beneficiaries are not only people who themselves cannot vote, but people whose parents are generally lower income, less likely to vote, that is going to make that more politically vulnerable. And then if it does die— we saw from the British example that the people who were most disadvantaged were the ones least likely to pick up the credit. That, like, a third of the people who were on the child tax credit weren't picking up their bonds or were being listed as no address. Like, that is a policy problem that is created by the political problem of the program being killed that is created by the problem of it being, you know, something that the people who have who are the most vocal constituency aren't necessarily the
2: voters that people are listening to. And with that, we should take a break. Let Dara tell us about her white paper. (coughs) My white paper.
1: Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates?
0: So this paper is from the American Sociological Review by Professors Renee Flores and Ariella Schachter, and it's one of a bunch of studies that have come up in the last several years that are trying to devise experimental ways to test not just stereotypes in general, but in particular, people's perceptions of immigrants. It's pretty easy to just poll people on, do you think that immigrants are on net good or bad for the U.S., and then everybody tries to, like, parse those numbers and go, well, are people thinking about legal immigrants when they hear that? Are they thinking about Mexicans? What contours does that have? So with these studies, the idea is to build out an idea of what mental image people have in their heads when they're thinking of immigrants, when they're thinking of undesirable or desirable immigrants. So this one, they gave them like, two hypothetical profiles of immigrants at a time, and they asked them to assess if each profile looked like someone who would be an illegal immigrant or a legal immigrant. And the traits in each profile were randomized so that you would get, for example, implausibly in real life, but in this experiment, like, the example they gave is a Canadian PhD who's been charged with murder and is working in a— low-income but formal job like a grocery store shelver, like that kind of weird combination of traits because that's then important so that you can distinguish, well, okay, what's the difference between what people say about a Canadian with all those traits versus a Mexican with all those traits? So the findings are mostly about one trait relative to the baseline of— with ethnicity, the baseline they use is Mexican. With criminal record, it's the baseline of not having a criminal record. How much more likely someone is, or white American in particular, is to say that someone is here illegally based on having that trait versus an alternative? And then they also ask a question about, if you think this person is here illegally and you saw them in a particular context, like applying for a job at your workplace, you know, walking through your neighborhood, would you report them to the authorities? Which is an added extra element of this that I think is really interesting, but that can be bracketed pretty easily just from the question of what do people have in their minds when they think of immigrants? And the answers are kind of not super surprisingly, but interestingly, that people tend to think of like Mexicans or Salvadorans, particularly Republicans think of Syrians as likely to be illegal, Somalis Mm -hmm. as likely to be illegal, that people think of people in informal sectors of the economy as likely to be here illegally, but not necessarily of people who are in low status sectors, like somebody who's working formally in a low income job is actually more likely to be seen as here legally than somebody who's working as like a freelance graphic designer. And that people with criminal records, in particular violent crime, but also kind of stereotypical immigrant crimes like driving without a license are a lot more, a lot more likely to be seen as here illegally than people without criminal records at all.
2: It's interesting. I mean, it's this is a good reminder that the constructs that people use to discuss politicized phenomena do not like correspond super closely to technical legal type categories. Something I've talked about a number of times is some of the Trump administration's uh, temporary protected status denials. And, you know, I tend to get like feedback in my email that's like about, well, blah, 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 illegals. And I'm trying to say like, well, by definition— They're not – like the policy question was just whether or not to render these people's presence in the country illegal. So like it's true that once Trump declares that their presence is illegal, they become illegals. But that's sort of neither here nor there on on the choice. Now what is true is that I think a very disproportionate share of Central American TPS recipients are sort of – sociotropically quote-unquote illegals. There is a lot of work in the informal sector that because they did not have legal permanent resident status, they had a somewhat tenuous existence in the United States. Even as they began to settle and put down roots, it's not the same as being a citizen. You did not have the opportunity to apply for citizenship, things like that. So you exist in a – kind of liminal state, right? And so then to the extent that to people, what illegality means is like not actually your legal status, but the kind of liminalness of your presence, like they really are, quote unquote, the illegals. Like that's in the title of of the paper even, which which I like. It it says like, who are the illegals, right? right? And like, yeah, I mean, I think that is asking the correct question of American politics, right? Is like, because otherwise things get question-begging, right? I mean, like one of the cases for doing a mass amnesty for the bulk of unauthorized residents is like you would have a much smaller illegal immigration problem if you mass-legalized people, which is true and like is something I agree with. It would be much more logistically feasible to have rigorous employer-side enforcement if the vast majority of the people received legal status, right? And then like from a legalistic standpoint, you could have a better operating system. But if the problem is the people, not their legality, right? And illegals is just a kind of label for people who are working in informal sectors, people who are coming from Latin America, blah, 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 then changing their legal status doesn't change the fact that they're the illegals.
3: Right. I think think that's like the interesting thing to me about this paper is kind of like raising the idea of illegal as like a label versus like Jared does all this great work, like, explaining immigration and, like, and these sorts of issues. But, like, that's not what is being thought of in the people that are being interviewed for this. Like, it's a social construct and a label that is being put on a specific type of person rather than, like, you know— And I don't know if you push—I don't think they did this in this, but if you, you know, push people on, well, actually, this person is here legally, I don't know that it would change their— Opinions of like that type of person being in the United States. Like I think they would still be in the like illegals category, even if you got information on, you know, that their immigration status was like will be like, well, technically legal, but like not the type of immigrant that you might that they would want here.
0: Right. And I mean, I feel like the the paradigm example of this is actually Syrian immigrants who are overwhelmingly here legally because they're largely refugees. If you look at a map. Yeah. (laughs) You can can start to see some of this. Yeah. People freak out about other than Mexicans at the southern border a ton. There's the idea that people are sneaking in as fake refugees or like posing some kind of fraud and they need to be better vetted is a very convenient bridge to take somebody who is here as a refugee and say, okay, but they're there on false pretenses. You know, it's very easy to kind of push back against, no, really, when I say they're illegal, here's what I mean. But the social... Not just construction mentally, but kind of the social generation of illegality is another dimension here. And that's where the second question of if you saw this person in this context, would you report them to the authorities matters? Because then it's not just, okay, how do you, Mr. White American, think about brown people? It's what effect are your actions going to have on immigrants' lives? For the people who actually do have to deal with the, like, legal ramifications of whatever immigration status they have— who also have to deal with this second dimension of how other people are treating them based on their perceived immigration status. But that's not necessarily, it's not going to comport perfectly with what their actual status is. But it also wouldn't necessarily comport with this kind of mental construction, right? You do, in fact, see that a substantial share of the people who say that X profile person is here illegally are not going to want to report them to the authorities. That varies a little bit by, you know, who's doing the reporting. The people who think of Syrians as here illegally, the average person who thinks of that is much more likely to want them reported than the average person who sees a particular Mexican is here illegally. But there definitely is a feeling that in particular contexts, especially like walking around in someone's neighborhood or like at your workplace applying for a job, that there is a benefit to calling the authorities on someone, to having them treated socially as someone who's here illegally. And that's where I think things get really interesting. Because the fact of the matter is that you don't have the full dossier on everyone you see on the street, right? Most of the time when we see cases of people blowing up at perceived immigrants. It's because they're not speaking English and, like, in a public space with them, right? You don't necessarily see whether or not someone has a criminal record. So the fact that that is more dispositive than whether or not they speak English well starts getting into circular questions of, okay, do you perceive someone as being a criminal because you perceive them as here illegally or vice versa? And when you have a lot of people who are here legally, but who share the traits of someone who is not just stereotypically illegal, but stereotypically worth calling the authorities on, that's a very real social production that has a legal angle on the people who, in theory, are supposed to be separate from the suspicion of
2: ICE. Right. I mean, that's a a sort of critical thing, right? It's like a lot of people seem to have feelings about their knowledge of the presence of unauthorized people in their community. But if you think of—I mean, nobody has like x-ray specs that are checking out everyone's immigration papers, right? Like this hypothetical scenario where like somebody applies for a job at your place of work and you somehow know that their documents are fake and then you call them— like this is something that doesn't happen, right? right? Like it's an interesting— situation to talk about, right? But, like, things happen about immigration well, in American yeah. society, and that is basically something that never happened.
0: Well, in this scenario, you don't necessarily know for sure that they're here illegally. You have stated that based on the facts you have, which are still more facts, what seems to trigger people being likely to call the authorities isn't just seeing people, like seeing somebody applying for welfare benefits. As much as people circulate quotes about, you know— Trump voters saying, I saw someone who didn't speak English applying for welfare benefits. Neither was it a big motivator of people thinking that someone was here illegally, nor was it a big motivator of people calling the authorities. It's the social proximity of having to work with someone or having them in your living space that is really
2: triggering these feelings of it is improper for this person to be here. I have to get them out. Which is why, obviously, no unauthorized people were cleaning homes. Right. In America. Fair enough. Because yeah. everyone is doing incredibly rigorous document checks on uh, various cleaning ladies. and I mean, it, it's interesting, right? I mean, it, 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 some of this stuff, like, made, made me wonder, like, about reality versus, you know, kind of, like, hypothetical experimental scenarios. Um, because it, it does seem like in practice you often see these sort of blowups, like, on airplanes, in other sort of – I don't quite know what to call them, right? But, like, places where people are thrown together with strangers and, like, made to interact in a way that seems unnatural rather than in the, like, actual ways that this pops up, right? Like, I have never heard of anyone just, like, slowing their roll by a construction site and being like, some of the day laborers here might be illegals, right? Like –
0: I don't have any examples on hand, but I'm sure that if you foiled the ice tip line for like- Yeah, maybe, this,
2: maybe, right. I, I, you're, I just think, I think this, you're right. There's some questions in my mind about like cheap talk. Versus, like, actual calling of authorities.
0: No, I mean, that's fair. Um, And I think you can even see that in the fact that not everyone is willing to act on their suspicions even in an experimental context. But it is also kind of like this is what we got, right? In a world where any individual (laughs) calling of ICE, you can kind of post hoc justify it by saying, well, I know they weren't legal because X, Y, Z, that— It is clear that public space is more accessible to some people than others, that there are chilling effects going on that are partially from the government but not solely from it. And thinking more about that and figuring out other ways to map the contours of it is an ongoing problem for social science.
2: All right. So with that, we're gonna we're gonna wrap it up. Thanks, Tara, for coming in, sharing a lovely white paper with us. And um, thanks, as always, to our producer Griffin Tanner. The Weeds is going to be back tomorrow with another Weeds midterm special. Woo-hoo! The blessed day is growing ever nearer. Uh, but we got to do some more podcasts. So I'll see you tomorrow. Bye.